0: Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. So how is everything going, guys? Seriously, I, uh, let's wait, we have over 100 people. I have to say, it's not been the absolute best of weeks for me because, well, I I don't wanna, the thing is these podcasts now go out and people watch them in all times and places in the future. So I don't wanna say anything that will date this too much. So just whenever you're watching this, just imagine or consider that maybe something has happened in the governance of your country that has left you very, very shocked, horrified, and desolate. Let's just say something like that happens. You may have any political leaning you want at some point Something political is gonna happen or something legislative is gonna happen that is going to make you feel terrible. So we're gonna talk about that today because, um, well, because I have very strong feelings about it and I know a lot of you probably do too. When you go out on um, social media, there is tremendous sadness and tremendous fear and tremendous anger about what has just happened politically in the United States. And I definitely am coming down on the side of people who are not thrilled with this change. There, how's that? So uh, I was sitting around with my family in despair yesterday because despair, you know, when something really volatile happens and then it feels really bad, you, can, you get to despair for a while. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let's just say that something has impacted you badly. We were sitting around, everybody was getting very morose. And I said, Aha, but we have to apply to this the techniques of Wayfinder life coach training, which sounds really stupid, but actually it has some good things in it. And one of those good things is that my whole theory is when something upsets your life, when you have bad news, a bad diagnosis, a bad, you know, a bad political, geopolitical event, anything that really strikes you very hard and feels like it's changing your life, you have experienced something we call a catalytic event. And a catalytic event is what turns on the mechanism of metamorphosis in your own heart, mind and life. So this is like a caterpillar reaching the stage where it's full fed and it's ready to turn into a butterfly. And it knows just when that happens, something triggers. And the first thing it does is it builds a cocoon around itself. It gets a protective chrysalis. Then when it, once it's walled up nicely, it dissolves. Those of you who have known my work probably have heard this a million times, but it's worth repeating if you just happen to be watching me for the first time. Caterpillars don't just go in there and grow wings. They dissolve into a liquid, undifferentiated soup, bug soup. And when the bug soup is fully dissolved, It triggers another biochemical reaction that uses the DNA instructions in that soup to construct a butterfly of exactly the same number of cells, which I think is pretty amazing. So I said to my family yesterday, we're going to be person soup for a while. I actually didn't think this thing could ever happen in the country I grew up in, but it's not the country I grew up in, it's the country we're in right now. And, And maybe I was wrong all along. Maybe there were deeper divisions than I knew ever, but, you know, trying to figure out what to do about it is actually not our first step when something monumentally bad has happened. Our first step is to let ourselves dissolve because our concept of who we were, where we were, what was going to happen around us has been shattered and we are going to have to become something different. The caterpillar never makes it out of the chrysalis alive. But the butterfly does. So the first thing is you cocoon and melt. And how do you melt? You go through the stages of grieving, which are part of any human being's reaction to something that he, or she, he, she or they does not like. So... Yeah, the grieving process with the five steps that um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross saw when she was dealing with people who are terminally ill. There's denial at first, like this can't be happening. There is bargaining. Then there's anger. And then there's sadness. And finally, and that those go round and round and round until one is fully disassembled, until you're just person soup. At which point, Something gets triggered, and I've seen this with thousands of people now, and I've felt it myself so many times. Something gets triggered, and you become a different person. A person who knows how to inhabit the world you're in right now. A person who has something to do about whatever you don't like in the world. Now, it's an interesting thing. When I when I was first reading about this, well, I, I remember going back to it when my son was diagnosed with Down syndrome, and I read this the stages of grief, and I'm like, where is fear? Because that was the big one for me. Like, how come fear is not a part of this? Like, everybody facing death is afraid. Everybody facing loss or catastrophe is afraid. Surely that's part of the grieving cycle. Well, it so happens that it's not. You can go through the whole grief, the grief process terrified, or you can go through the whole thing calmly, without fear. Now, I'm not one who, who, can do that masterfully but it's like Gandhi was not acting in fear when he decided to end civil war in his country by go- going on a hunger fa- a hunger strike and the 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 hostilities stopped because he wouldn't eat <laughs> i don't think he did that out of fear i think he did it because he had long ago digested all the injustices that were happening to his people and to him his own person and he had decided that he was going to take action in a certain way. And I'm gonna quote here from one of my favorite feminists and woman, uh, woman of color, Audre Lorde, who said, um, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. Less and less important whether I am afraid. It actually doesn't matter. You can be scared to death, you can be pretty calm. You're gonna go through the other things one way or the other. How do you go to calm? Mm. This is what I'm writing a book about right now. So let me tell you about what keeps us out of calm. And I've talked about this a little bit before too. There's a mechanism in our brains where we have a spurt of fear and it activates part of the, the left brain hemisphere that tries to control things. And then our frontal lobe on the left side tells a story about how bad things really are and how bad they're going to get and stories about things that could go wrong, things that have gone wrong, historical things. And this fear kicks back in to the part that first registers that things aren't okay, the amygdala. So it goes, oh no, oh, control everything. All right, here's, I'm going to tell this story. I'm going to go online and I'm going to rage and I'm going to just join with the people who agree with me and get, get a, get a, sense of being connected to them. And then I will, then I'll feel somehow better. This is all part of the the sort of pack mechanisms in our brain, the troop mechanism of a social primate. And it kicks back into the amygdala again. And over and over, the story gains in its ability to frighten us. The way to stop that is to stand back and watch yourself going into higher and higher levels of fear. It's a sad fact that you can go online and you can feed the fear story so much that it will just spiral like crazy out of control. And that is one reason the country is so divided right now because people go online and they spin stories, some of which are made up, and they believe each other's stories and they get more scared and they see things in an exaggerated way, whether they're on the right side or the left, and they they start to spin out of control with fear which then justifies aggression and destruction. It's trying to control things. And I I personally think this shift in our politics is trying to control. It is an aspect of the power structure trying to control the less powerful, no question. It's their left hemisphere rearing up. And now we get to decide what we're going to do with our reaction to what's happened. So the first thing is you cocoon and you melt, you melt, you melt. You grieve with your family, you um, get really angry, but remember, another quote from Audre Lorde, our task is to turn the anger that is affliction into the anger that is determination to bring about change. So you get that, you get the anger that is simply determination to bring about change, and you use your strength in the service of your vision and it becomes less and less important whether you're afraid and you move forward. You will not get to a better place in your life or in your contribution to the world through fear. You will only get there through courage. So it's time to let yourself completely fall apart, which takes courage. And if you, you have to trust, which takes courage, that when you are completely dissolved, when you don't know what to do, I've quoted Rumi before, when you're mute, dumbfounded, unable to say no, then a stretcher comes down from grace to gather us up. That happens when you've let yourself dissolve. And then, as all my coaches know, there will be a spark inside you like the Imago cells in a butterfly, in a caterpillar soup, <laughs> that tell it how to become a butterfly. And you don't know what you're going to be asked to do before you go through this grieving, this meltdown of who you were before. So I've talked about how, you know, pretty much whenever I get upset about something, I I ingest it, I go over it, and I write something about it. People told me to be a a protester in favor of uh, equal rights and attention for people with developmental uh, disabilities, like my son. I happen to be a very uh, physically not very physically feeble and enthusiastic, enthusiastically bookish person. So I wrote a book about him that was my attempt to create change in the world. And then when I was dealing with sexual abuse issues and the way the Mormon church covers it up, as many religions do, um, but that was my experience. I digested that until I was free from um, anger. And then I wrote The book that was my my attempt to bring about change. There was another time I also wrote a book about how we need to save the world from ecological destruction. You know, I just I write books about things. But there was one time you may not know about yet, even if you know me well, and that was when I was teaching a class, and the course materials for this class were a bunch of articles. There was no textbook Um, because it was kind of an obscure subject. But I had about 30 students, and they all wanted to know. And I had this big stack of articles, which I took to a little copy shop that was just off campus. And all the professors took their stuff there. And I took it there in April to get, and they were going to make 30 copies by September. So I started going in in August saying, are you done yet? No, we're not done yet. We're almost done. September came, September went. I was calling three times a day, do you have them yet? No, but we're we're really close. We just have to get permission from the copyright. Um, Class started, the school year started. I had no class materials, course materials, text at all for my students. I went back to the shop and I said, where is this stuff? And they had to admit they didn't know. And I said, can I go into your supply room? And I found all my documents that were meant to be copied under a stack of other things on a windowsill. They had not been touched. They were still in the bag I'd brought them in, in, this big stack of papers. And I thought, okay, semester's already started. Uh, No materials for my students. I'm quite angry. What do I do that is a determination to bring about change? So what I did, being trained as a sociologist and knowing how social movements work and how social protest works, I rented a bullhorn from the audio media center on campus and I called the campus newspaper and said, come to this copy shop tomorrow at the time my class convenes and bring a photographer, bring a reporter and a photographer. Then I told all my students, we don't have any text material. They're they're all at the copy machine. That's where class will be held tomorrow. So came time for the class to start all my students, 30 people file into this little coffee shop, sit down politely on the floor and I take the materials, which are still in the store, and I read them to through a bullhorn. So I'm reading like the philosophy of John Locke or something through a bullhorn in a coffee shop because it's the only way I can get the text material to my students and then there's somebody clicking on, and we made the front page of the campus newspaper. I mean, what more exciting than that is gonna happen? Um, And then they called the police on me, and the police came to arrest me. And they said, we're here to arrest you. And I said, why? And they said, you're not allowed to gather here without um, the owner's permission. And I said, no, 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 we do have freedom freedom of assembly in the Constitution. And they said, well, not if they asked you to leave. I said, they did not ask me to leave. They didn't ask any of us to leave. And the police went to the owners, and they said, did you not ask them to leave? And the owners were like, we're terrified. You know, of, of all these people who are listening to this... A sermon by John Locke. So we all got up in in a very orderly way, left that copy shop, and my anger was sated. (laughs) I felt better, Um, and I took the things with me, and we came up with a a tricky solution. I wasn't allowed to make a bunch of copies without um, asking for these academic journals to give permission, and I didn't have it, and it took months to get it. That's why I had it in so early. So what happened is each of my students took the stack, made one copy for themselves and passed it to the next who would make one copy for themselves. So maybe that was fudging the letter of the law, but it was in the spirit of the law. And what happened is that that when the newspaper came out, it turned out that hundreds of professors, hundreds had been waiting for their copies and not getting them. So they all withdrew their business and the copy shop closed down. And I started getting hate mail pushed under my office door on campus saying, that I was the Antichrist, which I thought was a little strong, but you know. All right. So that was a long story just to tell you that I'm a very quiet bookish person. But in that instance, when I went through the the melting down, I was pulled by the thread of my destiny. I talked about this last time we met, pulled by the thread of my destiny to do a classic activism thing. That might be what happens for you. That, and I'm assuming that some of you are upset about this thing. Um, if not, think of something else that upsets you. Same, same instructions. And all of this, here's the interesting thing. Once you know how to cocoon and melt and wait for the inspiration that is the action of the butterfly that is taking its anger, that is affliction and turning it into the anger that is determination to bring about change. Once that happens, there's a kind of joy that returns to your life that is a feature of integrity. It's not a feature of having everything you want it. It's not a feature of having circumstances the way you want them. It's a feature of acting in your perfect alignment with your body, heart, mind, and soul. And there's kind of a joy in that. And that's why this morning, um, uh, Row, one of my darlings, was reading a poem by Mary Oliver called The Invitation. And the, I, it, it buoyed up my spirits and I wanted to read it to you because it talks about these goldfinches. She always uses animal imagery. She says, just stop a moment out of your busy day to listen to these goldfinches. And I'll read it now. As they strive melodiously, not for your sake, and not for mine, and not for the sake of winning, but for sheer delight and gratitude. Believe us, they say, it is a serious thing just to be alive on this fresh morning in the broken world. I beg of you, do not walk by without pausing to attend this rather ridiculous performance. It could mean something. It could mean everything. It could be what Rilke meant when he wrote, You must change your life. So that's what happens when you get out of the fog of pain that is a human being experiencing or witnessing injustice and back into the integrity of your true self. Suddenly everything is speaking to you and the message that you need next might come from goldfinches in a field or it might come from one of Rilke's poems or one of Mary Oliver's or from your baby or we don't know. And that's the exciting adventure of this life. And I hope that this helps anybody who is struggling with anything out there right now. And now I would love to take some questions. Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. So Angie says, how do we know when we're taking an appropriate amount of time to become person soup when we're just, versus when we're just dwelling in negativity and resignation? Um, You can know the difference because uh, grief is productive and it goes in waves. You'll feel sadness, you'll feel anger, you'll express it. It'll break you down a little and then there will be a wave of relief. So it's like giving birth. There's an intense contraction and then relief. Whereas dwelling in negativity is just bad, 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 go online and say it, bad, bad, go online and read it, bad, 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 go into a silo with people who agree with you and bad, bad, bad it. That's negativity. Um, Grieving goes in waves and it feels clean. It's work, but it feels clean. Sarah says, when faced with a circumstance you cannot change on your own, how do you let go of control? You don't give your power to the person who is doing the thing you find unjust. You give your power to your true self and to whatever you believe is your higher power. So when I train coaches again, or when the folks were in South Africa with me to go to the STAR, the African Self-Transformation Adventure Retreat, we do this exercise from Aikido where you're basically having an arm wrestle with another person of about equal strength, or even someone very strong, much stronger than you are. And if you're fighting the other person, if you're thinking, I want to beat you, it'll be a draw or you'll lose, maybe force it to go your way. But if you take your attention off the other person and trying to change them and instead align with your true self by finding a place of deep, uh, deep fulfillment of self. So for me, it's when you're like, holding, you know, petting your cat on a rainy morning and being completely at ease, or talking with friends over, you know, over dessert in a restaurant and being completely delighted by each other's company. You go to something like that where you're you're all lined up because joy is your pre- predominant, predominant emotion. If you'd go into the arm wrestle with that attitude, you win. I mean, you win. Like the other person, finds himself giving up and going, what happened? What happened? It's, you won't believe it until you feel it, but it's true. So when you can't control anything, you double down on being your true self. You double down on connecting with whatever you believe to be your higher power. You double down on finding your sweet spot of truth and integrity in the world. And then you will be used to bring about change. And I think that's what Gandhi meant when he said, be the change you wish to see in the world. Jessica says, would you share some thoughts about supporting others, especially young people while they're in person soup? I have some reasonable practice at this, but sometimes going to fixer mode with my adult children. Yeah, they won't like that. (laughs) They can tell that you're trying to control them. And this whole thing is about when we're angry and scared, we try to control each other. And that's what's happening politically in the country. And that is definitely what's happening in people's relationships with their families. So what you do, it's called going to the balcony or going meta. You step back and you say, you know what? I think you feel like I'm trying to control you. You happen to be right. I was trying to control you. I really don't like seeing you suffer. And I was trying to make it go away, but I can't. And that's your birthright. But what I can tell you is that I know this process. It happens in a cocoon. You're going to melt down. You're going to be in the grieving cycle. It's going to feel like you're being ripped to shreds because your ego is being destroyed it is but you'll be safe and we'll get you through this and at the end of that you will be a different person you can't even imagine right now any more than a caterpillar can imagine the butterfly but you are going to have strengths and outlooks and wisdom and joy that you can't imagine so I'm here to help with the cocoon or to talk about the grieving but I'm not going to try to control you anymore full stop Okay, here are two questions that are similar, but both good and important. One is, oh, Kirsten, how do I help? This is similar to Jessica's. How do I help my 18 to 23 year old children go through this grieving process? They're so angry and sad and I don't have words. Say what I just said to Jessica's answer, but also say, I'm so angry and sad that I don't have words, but I've been angry and sad before. I've been around here a few minutes longer than you have, and I know how this process goes you're wordless and you give everything up. You become mute and helpless, lying in a zero circle. And then something, a stretcher comes down from grace to gather us up and we will become a mighty kindness. As Rumi said, tell them that they will feel it as truth because it is true <laughs> and they know that. Um, Bex Kelly says, when you're moving on from the person's soup status, how to stop yourself from sinking into the soup of others and getting dragged back in again? Thank you, Rowan, Martha. Really good question. Um, don't, don't bask in things that make you feel worse. It's very tempting. Um, Liz Gilbert always says, one, or one of her, um, her teachers in India told her, be kind to your brain. Don't take in things that are going to poison it. Like, don't. Con- I remember once I, w- I was reading a funny book called How Not to Write a Novel, and it had all these e- examples of bad writing. And Liz says, Sorry, I, f- I think it's funny, but if I listen to it, it's going to affect my writing. I won't listen. I won't read bad stuff. I read stuff that inspires me and lifts my game. And she's really scrupulous about keeping her mind clean. And if you feel yourself, start- it's, it's a little bit, I have almost never been drunk in my life but I think it's a little bit like like you feel when you're over binging on something like I've done that with food where you know it's getting worse and this is making it worse and you keep indulging whatever the addiction is and you kind of love the fact that it's destructive because you it takes out some of your anger when you feel like that around other people get away get away you will not form a a good butterfly if that energy is what you're taking in. Create a cocoon so that clean grief and anger can be expressed. From Mommy to Mindful says, how do you turn into person soup when you have a teenage son watching you and admiring how strong you are pretending to be? I'm falling apart, but I've always shown strength on the outside for him. I bet he knows you're faking it. Teenagers really see it. And our energy is Obvious. This is why I used to take people into pens with horses because they they think I am I'm passing for strong and confident and the horse would be like no you're not the horse could feel the emotional energy and would react to it perfectly and so do teenagers actually. So what you do, I know it sounds radical, you tell them the truth. You go to your son and say, I'm pretending to be strong for you, but I'm falling apart inside because that's what we do when we've been hit by something massive but watch I am able to keep the cocoon together and you will see me change and I hope that you can use this as an instruction for the the next time your life gets hit by a thunderbolt you know this is going to happen to all of us it's part of how it's how humans grow it's how we evolve into compassion and courage um so I'm sorry I'm gonna be falling apart crying sometimes, but let me just tell you now, I'll come out on the other side and I'll be, your, I'll be strong again. Um, you know, in the Bible, St. Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. You offer your weakness and say, I'm surrendering to this because that's how I learn to fly. That's how I become a butterfly. Let them in on the secret. Constellations in her bones, what a great tag, says, how do you find your voice in times of struggle? Sometimes you don't. That's the Rumi quote, be mute and helpless. You know, you just are like. Now, part of that is because language lives on the left side of the brain. And uh, that side of the brain, when it feels like something terrible has overcome it, it just quits. It's like its way of going forward is to argue. And it's like, nothing I say is making any, any difference, right? But that's good because like we're doing this course um, with people who signed up for my Wild New World course about going to the right side of the brain to become wordless as the beginning of magic, as the beginning of connection with your divine self, as the beginning of your real authentic power. So you lose your voice in times of struggle while you're melting down. But when you, as you melt down, as the anger and grief grind through you, you will find yourself getting clarity. I mean, I I had all this stuff to read you guys about how when John Locke wrote, all men are created equal and have inalienable rights. Did you know Thomas Jefferson stole that from John Locke? He did. Um, They meant white property-owning male adults. It did not say, they were not thinking um, everybody's equal. They were thinking all white property-owning men are equal. And that's part of the problem that we're we're still seeing. But I tried not to say that (laughs) because it's more important to be mute and helpless. Um, But as you, as the grief and anger grinds you through things, you will learn things, you will get clarity, you will become more definite about what you say. And I think that's why Mary Oliver's poem about the goldfinches singing not to win, but to Just exult in being alive. It is a serious thing just to be alive in this on this fresh morning in this broken world. That will be your voice when it comes. Couple more questions. Lynn says, How do we trust that the fight will inspire us yet again when we have fought all our lives as a feminist of age? (sighs) I'm with you. I am with you. And the one thing that's comforting me is the concept of an extinction burst right before a certain behavior stops, like a candle burning down, it flares. So the flame looks bigger. Right before people die, they may go into what's called terminal restlessness, where they suddenly get up and start running around, even though they haven't been able to get up for months, and then they die. Uh, If you're using, if you're trying to get a rat to stop a behavior in an experiment, just before it gives up the behavior, it escalates it. And this happens in humans as well. And it sometimes is the preface to the collapse of the system. And what we have in the political system of the U.S. right now is what's called an unregulated uh, feedback system. And unregulated feedback systems always collapse on themselves ultimately. So my hope is that something is dying, but it's fighting hard to control everything just before it dies. That's my my sociological hope. And last of all, Donna... Donna says, what can we say to those who are spinning out of control and saying this is just the beginning of the downfall of all human rights, gay marriage, etc. It seems so difficult to help them grieve and move forward with conviction to work for change. Yeah, I know. I'm one of the people in a same-sex marriage who could, you know, hear the jungle drums coming. Um, hear the, the Napoleonic march being pounded out as, as they come for us. Um, you do exactly what I've been saying for the last half hour. You pull them back out of the spinning fear. The fear is not necessary. The anger and the grief are enough. The fear will spur you on. But, you know, whenever something mysterious happens in the mystical literature of the world, if an angel or God shows up, one of the first things they say is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You can do all this, we can do all this. We can go through the anger, we can go through the, the um, sadness, we can go through the disbelief, we can dissolve, we can come back together again and we can do it all without being afraid or we can do it all by p- picking ourselves up and using courage because it matters less and less whether we are afraid. So. Remember to listen to the birds singing, not for your sake and not for mine and not for the sake of winning, but for sheer delight and gratitude. Believe us, they say, it is a serious thing just to be alive on this fresh morning in the broken world. Hope this helps. It was really great to hang out with you and um, folks who who disagree with me politically. Yes, I will be reading your emails. (laughs) So Guys, women, everybody, folks, thank you so much for showing up here once again, no matter what, to just say, hey, it's serious, just to be alive and together on this fresh smoke morning in the broken world. I love you. And I'll see you again very soon, right here on The Gathering Room.